tales of horror. As the sleepless hours tick past, brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Episode 19 of the No Sleep Podcast. I'm David Cummings, and now it's dark. This week, we have stories which all have the theme of horror presented in various forms of audio and video. It's remarkable to think that it's been almost 100 years since we started hearing horror stories adapted for the radio. And as technology transformed to movies, then to videotapes, and now into the realm of virtual reality, we are seeing horror being presented in unique ways. And I'm glad we here at the No Sleep Podcast can continue to present audio horror fiction, a truly unique medium for sharing the dark, disturbing tales we all love. And so, whether it's a VR headset or an old VHS player, let's get ready for the sounds of horror. And we'll begin our journey down this lost highway. In our first tale, we meet a man who likes to scour the flea markets in his area for old collectibles, score a bargain, clean up the items, sell them for a hefty profit on eBay. Easy, right? Well, as we learn in this tale, shared with us by Mr. Michael Squid. The man buys a box of VHS tapes, including one without a label that he can't resist watching. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio and Jessica McAvoy. So if you want to find some classic movies on VHS, you'll likely have a lot of fun, as long as you don't watch the tape that makes you bleed. I found it in a box of old VHS tapes I picked up from a flea market. I hunt for deals there. You know, sellers are often looking to unload crap that sits around their houses. I buy in bulk, then check the goods, tossing out duds and ensuring items work or clean and include necessary pieces before jacking up the price and selling them on eBay. Videotapes are usually a minimal profit at best, but I've found rare items. First releases, Black Diamond Edition Disney's, and rare cover versions that collectors just eat up. At any rate, I picked up a large box of tapes that looked to be in great condition for five bucks, and it wasn't until I got home that I started checking them thoroughly. When I did, I found a standard black videocassette tape missing a box. Normally, these don't interest me because they're usually unsaleable. Secondly, this had no standard label, so it was likely some home movie. But what stopped me from tossing it right then was there was this black strip punch label stuck to the back that read 23211 in blocky white raised letters. I suspected from the dating system that it was European, and when it didn't play on my NTSC VCR, that confirmed it. I huffed as I returned to my closet and fetched my European PAL deck. 
It was only 6 p.m. and I had time to kill, so I popped the tape in the old VHS player and pressed play. The footage was black and white, shot from high up in the center of a room where the wall met the ceiling. The camera was pointed down to a thin woman hunched over a wheelchair. Based on the angle and the stillness of the footage, it was clearly a surveillance feed. The footage was grainy, but I could see the seated woman looked disheveled. Her gray, chin-length hair was matted and messy, and she appeared to be dressed in a filthy hospital gown. The way the woman was positioned looked still and unnatural. I quickly realized her wrists and ankles were bound to the wheelchair with straps. Both the walls and floor were padded with quilted square cushioning, and the door behind her had a slot in it, resembling something out of a mental hospital or a maximum security prison. Just a second after the recording began, the bound woman raised her head and looked directly into the camera. I immediately felt a growing sense of dread as the intense stare of the woman burned into my retinas. Some primal part of my brain awoke and implored me to get away. But I just watched as curiosity and fear mingled into an all-encompassing wave of building anxiety. The woman just sat in her chair staring, but my mouth began to dry and my breath felt abrasive. My sinuses burned and soon I felt the patter of liquid onto my lap from my nose. But I couldn't turn away from the screen. I heard a rapid tapping and it took a few seconds of trying to understand the sound before I realized it was the chattering of my teeth. I was shivering, and my arms and legs trembled as I watched the woman on the screen tilt her head to one side as if observing me through the screen itself. That feeling of impending danger heightened, and I wanted to turn it off at that point, but I just kept watching as the woman began fidgeting in the wheelchair's restraints. She was becoming progressively more agitated, thrashing until the chair began to rock between the two large wheels. After a few minutes, she opened her mouth and began to scream. The tape was silent, but I swear I could hear her faintly, not through the speakers. It was like she was screaming from inside my head, small and muffled from deep under the folds of my brain. I felt my lips crack in stinging slivers. I began to wonder just how long I'd been watching the tape, but I was enthralled by the unsettling footage, unable to stop it. Eventually, the door to her room opened, and two large men in white uniforms entered her padded cell. One was shorter with a shaved head and stocky build, the other taller with a slender frame and face outlined by dark bangs. The tall man began holding his head in apparent agony, screaming and then dropping to his knees on the padded floor. He remained there as the shorter guy struggled to remove the cap from the syringe. I only then noticed the subtle relief my own body experienced. It was as if whatever had taken a hold of me, the intense dryness in my throat, a pulsing headache, and the palpable dread had redirected its focus. The man on his knees began to shiver and soon enough, his nose streamed down a dark rivulet of blood. The shorter man with the shaved head had uncapped the syringe, but was clearly struggling. His right arm drew it closer, needle first, towards his own eye. His left was gripping his other wrist, struggling to redirect its course. I watched in horror as the tip punctured his eye just a centimeter or so. He seemed to regain control and quickly removed it. He then stabbed the needle into the bound woman's shoulder, 
and pressed the plunger fully down. The feeling of intensity seemed to wash away from both the on-screen characters and myself. Euphoria set in as my previous state of dry, labored breathing and chest pains left me. The two workers at the hospital or prison or other such facility both seemed to recover as well, the one helping his cohort to his feet. The two men left the room, securing the sturdy door behind them. I watched for a few minutes as the woman in the wheelchair slouched and then dropped her head. She looked to be asleep, or at least heavily sedated. She remained that way for a good minute or two after the man had cleared out. I watched her slack body for a few minutes more in utter fascination until the tape reached the end and stopped with an audible click. The intense anxiety dissipated completely, and I only then realized how absolutely drastic the shift in my own state had been. I felt as if I had been desiccated. Every ounce of water in me sucked out, yet my nose was wet and dribbling down my chin. When I wiped it instinctively with the back of my hand, I saw that it was blood. There were dark red spots in my lap as well from where it had poured out during the viewing of the tape. I stood up on muscles that ached and groaned. I glanced at my phone for the time and stopped in place, my jaw agape. The time read 6 p.m., the same time I'd started watching the tape. I was about to chalk it up to a glitch when it changed to 6.01. There was no shadow of a doubt in my mind that I'd watched that tape for a good 10 minutes or so. I stretched my aching muscles and walked to the bathroom to clean my bloodied nose. I downed a quart of water or so, dying of thirst. I waited a few days before even considering watching the tape again. When I did, everything that secured my knowledge of the world I knew seemed to crumble. It was a sunny afternoon a week later when I built up the courage to watch the tape again. I just felt the urge to confirm what I experienced was real and not some effect of delayed food poisoning, an allergic reaction, or some other bizarre coincidence. I popped the VHS tape in and rewound it, which took only seconds. When it stopped, I pressed play. The woman bound to the wheelchair once again appeared on the screen, and a foreboding feeling of dread began to simmer inside of me. Something was different, though. The woman was askew, facing the camera still, but at a slightly different angle, as if her wheelchair had shifted. On the floor behind her, black spots where the guard had yet to collapse were on the floor. It was as if the tape was showing a continuation of what had previously been recorded. My palms began to sweat, and my throat dried like an arid desert as I watched the woman once again. Her hair was shorter, trimmed down unevenly as if someone had hastily clipped the matted patches and knots. I knew it was impossible, but the tape appeared to be now showing a different recording altogether. Then she looked up at the camera, and I felt it again. My throat swelled and dried, and my breath began to burn. Her eyes locked onto mine through the screen. I felt the spasm in my arms and legs as they began to shiver. My sinuses flooded, and my nose began dribbling out a thin stream of blood, which dripped rhythmically onto my shirt. I watched, unable to peel my eyes away as the woman in the wheelchair yanked her spindly arms, snapping her restraints. I let out a yell as she stood up fully, revealing the filthy hospital gown. She walked slowly towards the camera, and her wrinkles came into view through the fuzzy tape, 
Her features looked young, but her pale skin was wrinkled and speckled with burst capillaries. Her eyes were milky with cataracts and wild with excitement. She drew closer, getting larger on screen until her face was clear. And she mouthed something I swear I could hear inside of my head. Je te vois. A hint of a smile crept onto her face before the tape clicked to a stop. I haven't yet worked up the nerve to watch it again. I bled a significant amount during the second viewing, and I'm frankly scared of that videotape. I attempted to make a copy, but it showed nothing but a black screen when played. I even tried recording it with my phone, but the TV screen in the video is black aside from a flicker. What I just can't shake are those words she'd spoken that resonated from deep within my skull. They're French, and they translate to, I see you. I think we can agree that one thing we all need these days is some understanding about what others are dealing with in their life. And to that end, we find that in the future there will be a national mandate for school children to participate in something called a fear swap. As explained by author Michelle D. Ring, this involves two kids linking via VR headsets to experience the fears of one of their fellow students. I join Sarah Thomas, Danielle McRae, Jessica McAvoy, Nicole Doolin, and Mary Murphy in performing this tale. So understand that others are dealing with some horrible issues. You'll learn that after you experience an exercise in empathy. On the first Thursday in October, every K-12 student in America was to gather together in their school's gymnasium to perform what was known as the Fear Swap. It was a relatively new practice. It had only been proposed a few short years ago, but it was already mandatory nationwide. An exercise in empathy, the news liked to call it, but in actuality, it was just an embarrassing and invasive excuse to get out of class for an hour or so. Jet absolutely hated the fear swap and always begged their parents to let them opt out. But like most grown-ups these days, Jet's moms had no sympathy for the struggles of 10-year-olds. Anytime their child would complain, it was always the same old response. You should consider yourself lucky. Back when we were in school, we had to dissect dead animals, carve them all up and take them apart like some sort of mad scientist. It was, in all fairness, a somewhat valid comparison, but Jet doubted they'd be saying such things if they had to experience the swap for themselves. There was no use arguing about it, though. All that would do was start a screaming match and lose them their dessert privileges. And so, 
when the date and time came, Jet followed their classmates out into the auditorium where the entire student body was lined up by grade. Once every class was accounted for, their principal, Mrs. Lee, took to the podium and began speaking. As I'm sure most of you are aware, today you will be using a virtual reality helmet to experience one of your fellow classmates' worst fears. This is an opportunity for you all to step into someone else's shoes and empathize with the struggles they may face on a daily basis. This information is not something to be taken lightly, and anyone who is caught sharing details of their partner's simulation or purposefully trying to frighten them will be punished severely. Now, I'll hand you over to your regular teachers for the duration of the exercise. Once you and your partner have finished your simulations, you may head to the cafeteria where snacks and counselors will be available for the rest of the afternoon. Once she was finished, the assembled students began talking amongst themselves, creating a dull roar of nervous anticipation. Jet's teacher, Mrs. Emerson, chirped above the noise. Everyone find a partner! There was a momentary scramble in which all of Jet's classmates moved toward one another, dead set on securing a partner they could trust. Jet wasn't quite that lucky. All of their friends were older than them or in different classes. They scanned the group for other outliers, but couldn't seem to find any. Several minutes went by. Jet folded their arms in front of them and tried not to make it too obvious that they were alone. Okay, so who doesn't have a partner? Raise your hand. Jet kept their arms to their side, as did everyone else. The teacher scowled. There's an odd number of you. I know there has to be someone. Jet sighed and took a tiny step forward. Mrs. Emerson nodded and told them to go find Mr. Khan, who also had an odd number of students in his class. Jet was annoyed over having to work so hard for something they didn't even want to do in the first place, but they did as the teacher said. They could feel the eyes of their classmates following them all the way. The kid Jet got paired up with was a small, mousy girl named Madeline. The only reason they knew her name and pronouns was because she had transferred to their school at the end of last year under suspicious circumstances and had hardly spoken a word to anyone since. Jed had often heard other kids refer to her as the ghost, and standing face to face with her, it was easy to understand why. Her long black hair was stringy and lifeless, like something out of a Japanese horror film. Her skin was a sickly grayish beige, and there was something haunting about her eyes, almost as though they were completely devoid of joy. Jet gave her an awkward smile and politely introduced themselves, but Madeline made no indication of hearing them. She was too busy tapping her right index finger against the side of her knee and gnawing on her bottom lip. Jet could definitely relate. Fear sims could be really scary, especially when you had no idea what was coming at you. Jet tried to calm her nerves. I'm not scared of anything too crazy. Uh, Mostly just spiders. This time, Madeline craned her neck at them. In that moment, she didn't look nervous or scared. Her expression was pitying and perplexingly sad. The look was so out of place in the bright fluorescent light of the gym that it sent shivers down Jet's spine. I'm sorry. 
Jet was opening up their mouth to ask for clarification when Mr. Khan came up and placed a hand on Madeline's shoulder, making her jump. We're about to get started. He handed each of them a headset. Madeline put hers on with trembling fingers and sunk down to the ground without another word. Jet watched her for a moment before doing the same. The two of them sat back to back, staring into a blank screen as the teacher linked and connected their headsets. Jet waited with bated breath as the simulation loaded all around them. Then, with a muffled beep, they found themselves logged in Madeline's subconscious. At first, it seemed as though Jet was watching a sped-up but relatively normal day in her life. She got up, went to school, came home, worked on homework, and ate dinner with her family. As nighttime grew nearer, though, she began showing increasing levels of distress. Her natural frown deepened and her shoulders sagged. Her nervous tics became more pronounced. She purposely avoided looking at herself in the mirror while she was brushing her teeth, and there were several times when she'd stop in the middle of whatever she was doing just to glance over her shoulder. Once under the covers, she didn't even try to sleep. Instead, she kept her eyes fixed on the window overlooking her bed. Jet watched the window too, heart racing with sick anticipation. Slowly but surely, the hours ticked away, until finally, right around midnight, a shadowy figure emerged from the woods. The creature had no face or distinguishing features to speak of. It was just a black and vaguely feminine shape outlined against the moonlight. Only, it wasn't made of the kind of blackness that could be found anywhere in nature. This figure felt like it was consuming every ounce of light around it, making it ten times darker than the moon was bright. It moved with an unnatural grace, walking an impossibly straight line from the copse of trees at the back of Madeline's house, all the way up to the little girl's window where it stood for a few moments, as if luxuriating in Madeline's terror. At this point, Jet was starting to get a little bit spooked. This was more detailed and specific than any fearsome they'd ever been in or heard of. They didn't quite know what to make of it. Was this a memory? A recurring nightmare Madeline had? Or maybe just some over-the-top way of expressing that she was really afraid of the dark? As Jet and Madeline watched, the figure lifted a gnarled hand up to the glass. Almost instantly, the creature sank through the cracks in the windowpane, reappearing on the other side like smoke. The creature took two long, purposeful strides and then stood at the foot of Madeline's bed, staring at her. Madeline was looking back at it with sad, tired eyes. It was clear that this scenario... Whatever it was, was a common occurrence. Then, almost faster than Jet's eyes could register, the monster leapt up and hovered over top of her. All at once, the soft, buzzing sound of electricity vanished, and the moving screensaver on Madeline's computer came to a halt. The alarm clock on her bedside table remained stuck at exactly 12.05. This was when Madeline finally started struggling and letting out screams, but it was no use, Jet realized. In this stalled place between seconds, no one could hear her. It turned out 
that Jet was wrong about the creature not having any facial features. As they stood there, paralyzed by fear, the bottom half of the thing's face dropped down as if on a hinge, revealing a wide, disgusting mouth full of shark-like teeth. Madeline's screams quickly turned into pleading. Please. The creature craned its neck. It was clear that it could hear her, but it did not listen. It bore down on the girl, pressing its spindly limbs into hers until she could no longer move. Then, with the same languorousness of a moviegoer reaching into a bag of popcorn, it lifted Madeline's hand to its mouth and started gnawing on one of her fingers. Madeline screamed out in agony, but the creature remained unfazed. A spider slowly enjoying her midnight snack, consuming the girl bit by bit. This continued on for what felt like hours, until Madeline's wailing faded into quiet sobs, and then a wet gurgling. And then, when there was not enough left of her to keep her mind working, nothing at all. Jet felt ready to keel over from nausea, but it was impossible to look anywhere else. It was something so shocking and horrible that their brain kept them rooted in place as it desperately tried to work out a logical explanation. But there was none, and so they bore witness to every flesh-tearing, bone-crunching bite until Madeline ceased to exist, completely devoured by the beast. Seemingly satiated, the creature closed its mouth and climbed down from Madeline's bed. It stretched out its arms and rolled its neck. For just a split second, Jack got the sense that it was looking at them. Then the moment passed, and the thing made its way back to the window, exiting the same way it had come in. As soon as the nightmarish woman was gone, time started to move again. The screensaver resumed its usual path, and the sounds of wind whistling outside filled the room. Jet sank down to their knees. About a million half-formed thoughts were swirling around in their brain, but chiefly among them was... Why am I not waking up? Then the clock finally moved to 12.06, and Madeline rematerialized in her bed with a gasp. The queasiness in Jet's stomach intensified tenfold as they realized the implication of such a thing. Jet watched as Madeline laid there choking on sobs until her exhaustion finally won out and lulled her to sleep. Then and only then did the simulation finally collapse. Jet ripped the headset off of their face the second they regained control of their physical body. Madeline was sitting cross-legged in front of them with tears in her eyes. I'm sorry. Jet reached up and ran trembling fingers through their hair. The child was in complete and utter shock over how someone could be afraid of something so disturbing and specific. They allowed themselves a moment to get their racing heart under control before speaking carefully. That woman, is she from a scary movie or something? Madeline clenched her fists in the fabric of her pants and laughed a manic, humorless laugh. No. She shook her head and turned to them with helpless eyes. I first saw her in a fearsome, just like you.
For many of us, getting away from screens and technology is important. Like the man we meet now, he likes to go for walks in the forest to clear his mind. But in this tale, shared with us by author M. M. Kelly, the man finds a television among the trees, and then another, and another. And to make things even more bizarre, the images on the screens get more and more disturbing. Performing this tale are Peter Lewis and Jeff Clement. So stick to the trees and the trails. One thing you don't want to see is the TV in the woods. Finding the strange things abandoned in the woods. Old cars, shanties from bygone days. Figuring out what a rusted heap was in its heyday. It's absolutely exhilarating. I found out about a trailhead nearby that I hadn't visited yet. It didn't have a name or pop up on any of the National Park websites. The forum post simply called it the uh, Route 50 Trail. It had some uh, ravines, it was bordered by the river at a few points, and no one else seemed to have ever seen or noticed it. The day I decided to venture out on Old 50 was a bright and sunny Saturday morning. I let my girlfriend know where I was headed just in case. The Route 50 trail was exactly where the post said. The parking lot was a gravel strip just big enough for maybe three cars to park. The trail was a worn dirt rut, straddled by two short wooden poles bridged by slack steel cord. A small do-not-enter sign, slightly rusted, hung on the middle of the cable and squeaked if a breeze caught it. I stepped over the steel cord and went on my way down the twisting dirt path. Young trees jutted out over the trail and brambles stretched lazily across. The peacefulness was what I wanted and it felt like I was a thousand miles away from anyone. There's something special about taking the road less traveled, especially so when it's literal. The shabby trail twisted and dove downhill, and the canopy mostly parted to give way to the sky. Roots laid bare by erosion made steps in the steepest parts. Blackberry vines shambled across the path, thick with thorns and berries to bask in the sun. The track led to a clearing with a stump in the middle. Perched on top of the stump was an old CRT-style television. The screen silently fizzed with static. Uh, gorilla art? I approached the stump to inspect it. The power cord snaked around and disappeared into a patch of bark that hadn't fallen away from the remnants of the trunk yet. I gave it a gentle pull, but the cord wouldn't budge. I tried to wiggle the television. It also had no give, like it was bolted down. The power button was missing from the front, as were the buttons for volume. I pressed the up channel button. Channel 4 popped up in blocky green letters in the corner, but the static remained. I continued incrementing the channels up. Static, more static, uh, then a flash of something green. I backed up through the channels slowly. Leafy green branches swayed in a soft breeze. I gave a surprised chuckle. (laughs) 
The same chuckle played over the video a few moments later as a squirrel passed through the frame. Hey! Hey! My own voice echoed back moments later, confirming my suspicions. I slowly flipped through a few more channels of static. One feed was viewing the clearing from above. I took the time to try to find a hidden camera, but the best I could tell it was buried in a squirrel nest nearby. I searched for a geocaching log or guest book, but found nothing. As the novelty wore off, I went along the path to the other side of the clearing. Some wildflowers grew along the edges of the trail now that it had opened up a little to let the sun in. I spotted a rusted heap of old beer cans. While gazing through the brush and into the woods, I saw a heap of brown metal. Naturally, I climbed through the bushes and into the forest to check it out. It was an old pickup truck, embraced by vines and woody growth. Not too far off of the path, the uh, paint, glass, and tires had long since been lost to the flow of time. Even the hood was gone, stolen for scrap, I speculated. A 1950 GMC, my all-time favorite. I grabbed the driver's side door handle and pulled. <clears throat> Stuck. I jerked on it a little more and it came off in my hand. The door handle sailed through the forest with some of my frustration. I leaned my head into the open window frame. Despite the outside appearance, the inside was pristine. The white trimmed leather was as flawless as if it had just been rolled off the showroom floor. The blue paneling was a perfect shade of robin's egg. I reached in and tugged the interior door handle. The rusty piece of metal swung open as if freshly greased. I slid onto the soft bench seat. Without the crunching of leaves and twigs to drown it out, a faint tune wafted through the cab. A dim glow backlit the analog radio dial. I reached out to turn it up. The little metal-lined knob shocked me. Ah, after a small turn, but it was enough for the words to become more than incoherent mumbles. That fraction of the song looped through the speakers and into me. The song dug deep into my psyche. It burrowed in and stubbornly took up residence. The haunting melody of the music swept me away for a moment. A deer traipsing through the underbrush startled me back to my senses. I jumped up but was immediately yanked back into the soft bench seat. I went into a blind panic. The backrest and the seat started trying to close on each other like I was a human snack. I wrestled with it, trying to push them apart in my panic while also trying to eject myself from the cab. I jerked at the seatbelt. When had I buckled it and jabbed at the button to release it? My panicked yells echoed through the forest until I finally managed to free myself. I raced through the forest, coming back to the worn trail. I slowed my pace and tried to catch my breath. I... I must have just gotten tangled up in the seatbelt and I triggered the backrest to collapse. No need to freak out. It's just a junker abandoned in the woods. Probably part of the art installation, like the TV. I decided to continue along the trail. The further along I went, the more obvious an electronic buzz of broadcast static became. I hurried down the path and the noise slowly got louder. Then it wasn't static anymore. It was a 
A sonic mess of delicate clicks, like thousands of needles tapping on plastic. I came upon another clearing with another TV and stump in the middle. The patterns of the missing bark on this stump were almost identical to the first one. I came around it to view the screen, expecting to find another live feed of me. Mealworms. Thousands of mealworms writhed and crawled upon each other, their millions of legs clicking against the chitinous bodies of their neighbors. Insects usually don't bother me. Honestly, they usually fascinate me. But there was something about this video. The sheer mass and being able to hear their movements, the way they slid against each other and blended into one another, seeming like individuals while appearing as a single grotesque unit. I tried to switch channels, but it was just varying levels of zoom on what appeared to be that pit of possibly thousands of mealworms. The swirling blacks and browns were intoxicating. They drew in my mind while my stomach churned and my hands tried to knock away insects that weren't there. I burped a little vomit and my mind came back to the present. I decided to keep going to see if there was more to this art installation. The next television appeared faster than I would have ever assumed. It felt like I was just moments away from the mealworm station, but I was already staring down a third set from behind. I rounded the corner, and there, there was an enormous eye staring out into the woods. It just took up the entire screen, which was on a fairly large tube television. Right off the bat, it seemed like it was smashed against the glass of the camera filming it. Looking at it was like looking at the eye of a porcelain doll. You know, it seemed to be watching me. I moved a little bit to the side. A slimy noise slurped from the speakers. It slid over to keep me in its gaze. My heart dropped for a moment, but then reason told me that it was just a coincidence. I ducked. The dark iris followed me down to the lower corner of the screen with that same wet noise. I jumped around a little more and it kept up with me. <sighs> I, I concluded that there must be a, another hidden camera and a computer to help track my movements. The eye was so real, though. I knelt down and checked for controls again. Just like the other two, only channel keys were present. I pressed the up button. The lens pressed against the eye harder, causing more of it to smash against the glass. I pressed it again, and the same thing happened again, and a low hiss like something leaking fluid came from the speaker. The bottom portion of the screen was slowly puddling with a thick red liquid. Half of my brain said the CGI and programming for this was amazing. The other screamed that this was too realistic. The reasonable part of my brain echoed what I learned in school. When you hear hooves, think horses, not zebras. Something deviant, not deep in my core, whispered to zoom again. What, what if it was a live eye somewhere? Could I be causing something or to fuck even someone permanent damage because of a deranged interactive display? 
No way. I zoomed in again. A light, mechanical, spinning sound came from the speakers, and then the eye started to split on the sides, filling the empty space below and along the edges with more blood. That little deviant voice in my head whispered to go further. I zoomed in again, and then a second time for good measure. I screamed when the blood seeped from the little holes that covered the speaker. And then I laughed. This wasn't some remote camera cranking down on someone's eye like a modified Milgram experiment. No, of course not. This was probably just some pretentious art major's final. (laughs) They went a little overboard. But then it wasn't funny. Was I really willing to hurt some unknowable thing or person just for the sake of my own curiosity? I sat down against the stump and took a deep breath. The fake blood kept rolling down the stump next to me. It smelled like a handful of hot pennies. I'm not some kind of sadist. I'm really a a regular guy who got sucked into whatever this is on the trail. I don't know who I thought I was talking to. Nothing answered me. I'm not really sure that I even believed myself. My own voice, not my boss's voice or some faceless government agents, my own, had insisted I push farther, had challenged me to keep pressing the button. I hadn't needed any coercion at all. Who does that? I headed up the trail back to my car with the pep torn from my step. I couldn't remember if the forest was this silent when I came in, but it was now. I was alone with my thoughts, questioning if I was really sick enough to hurt someone else with a push of a button. The TV with the live feed was facing me in the next clearing. Did I, uh, space out through the sound of the mealworms? Convinced myself that was the case. I kept climbing up the hill, but then the next clearing had the television with the deflated eye still staring at me in a pool of crimson in the dirt at the base of the stump it was resting on. The fuck? There weren't any wrong turns to take. Was this a different location? Were the television sets made to shuffle the footage? I took out my pocket knife and carved my initials into the stump. If I ended up back here, my initials would be there too. A fog rolled into my brain like a high tide sweeping the beach. I, I I did park uphill, right? Down, downhill? I, I went downhill. It was easy. I'm not tired. The car has to be uphill. It felt like I was going the right way. I used the natural steps, the ones that formed from tree roots. This trail, though... This trail was unkempt. It got more and more overgrown the further up the hill I went. There were no turns, no forks, and no options, just a path through the trees. My phone had no service. I tried my Maps app anyway. The phone picked up my location, but couldn't load the map data without an internet connection. I remembered from scouting the map before I came that the trail leads south of where I parked. Uphill was south, according to my phone. I headed back down the hill. My answer was simple. I had traversed a ravine without noticing, due to being too enamored with the curiosities hidden in the woods. 
The path cleared more as I went further downhill. Wildflowers populated the edges of the trail again as the canopy opened back up. The sun sat high in the sky like it was much earlier than the five o'clock my phone displayed. I saw a few shoes hanging from branches, but fought to remain focused on finding my way out. I landed on flat ground after about twenty minutes. The trail transitioned from dirt in the woods to tall grass neatly mowed, with a perpendicular path cut that led to a clearing. Like an ancient shrine, a TV was perched high on a dead tree trunk. I know I didn't see this, I would remember something like this. I kept trying to convince myself to continue making my way to my car. Night would be upon me soon and I might end up sleeping in the woods if I didn't find my way out in the near future. But I couldn't help myself. This television was powered off. The TV itself sat on a five-foot-high tree trunk and had no buttons. A flashback to the mealworms and the eye left me relieved that this one was blank, yet I fixated on it. Why wasn't this one on? What kind of statement was the artist trying to make? I looked to see if there was a trigger or, or maybe something wrong with it. It turned out to be the latter. The cord was ripped from a barky patch in the stump. So that's how they did it. I picked up the cord. While I expected frayed copper wires, I found something much different. Two rows of twisted red and pink bundles hung lifelessly from the rubber wire jacket. A gentle touch told me too much. It was warm, wet, and soft. I threw the cord to the ground as I realized what sat in my hand. Tissue. My brain couldn't make sense of it. Something deep inside of me wanted to keep believing it was just an art installation in the wild. Yet there was something more to the cord. Something almost completely obscured by the alien material in front of me. I touched it a second time, letting it linger on my finger. It made my skin tingle. A, a nerve? As if the dead television could answer me. Plug it in, something whispered from the recesses of my mind, an intrusive voice telling me to jump from the middle of a bridge. I stopped and shook my head. Absurdity. It was purely absurd, the entire installation. The juxtaposition of technology against nature, the commentary on the nature of man and his place between them, and suddenly I felt the need to be a part of it, a participant in a greater vision. I eased the limp, tissue-like threads towards the hole in the stump. As they neared, they sprang to life, first with subtle twitches and jerks, and then with tentacle-like stretching and reaching. I marveled at the reaction, and my mind raced with the possibilities of the mechanism capable of such a thing. When near enough, the pink tendrils grabbed onto the board hole and snapped the cord back into place. A soft, dreamy melody chimed, followed by a loud, static buzz as the television perched atop the trunk powered back on. I scurried back around, brimming with anticipation. A shiny porcelain face 
stared down at me. When I moved, it followed me. It didn't blink or smile. It just stayed pointing at me as if it could see me through those empty black sockets. I found it honestly very satisfying to see the amount of craftsmanship that must have been poured into making this experience. I danced about in the clearing in an attempt to fool the floating mask, and then turned to walk away, chuckling to myself at the novelty I found in this exhibit. Life could be a dream. <laughs> I turned back around as fast as I could, all while trying to evacuate my heart from my throat. The mask was grinning like a madman, each lip revealing neat rows of teeth. The teeth glistened as if a thick layer of saliva was about to run from them. They were simultaneously cartoonishly white while still holding the precise shape of human teeth, albeit with slightly more pronounced canines. I went to return to the path, reminding myself that I needed to find my way out. I checked my phone for the time. 7.45 p.m., but the sun was still holding high in the sky. Dusk should have been right around the corner, but high noon was bearing down on me. I shoved my phone back into my pocket and went to hit the trail again, my shoulders weighed down with frustration. We could take you, Zack, a paradise of... My name is Zack. I... I stood in shock, trying to think of a way for them to have figured out my name in the short span of time I'd been in the woods. How was my cell clock so far off? Did they scan my license plate when I parked? Were they spoofing a GPS signal so my phone would find the wrong time? RFID sweep one of my cards? your way, wanderer. The mask sneered from behind the glass. How the fuck? I grabbed a nearby rock and heaved it at the screen as hard as I could. The mask grimaced as if bracing itself for impact. A roar like a lion burst from its teeth as the stone bounced from the glass, taking a chip from its curved surface. I grabbed the rock from the ground after it bounced back towards me, the mask snarling. The rock sailed through the air a second time, and the mask's face contorted with fear moments before impact. A pop, a flash, some smoke, and it was done. A few pieces of glass fell to the ground at the base of the trunk. Curiously, the mask lingered. It jerked and wheezed in the smoky air inside of the TV and then clattered to the bottom of the busted set. I cleared more of the cracked glass from the edges of the television with a stick I found nearby. The smell coming from the shattered tube was rancid, but the smell was inconsequential compared to the image of the mask, writhing as if gasping for air. I probed it with my stick to find that it was considerably softer than I expected, its polished white surface belying its nature. I stared at it, at its empty eye sockets, at its mouth trying to gulp the air. This 
This is too elaborate. Something inside of me screamed, to which a much calmer voice placated. It's surely just a, a bit of polymer and robotics. I shoved the stick into the dark eye cavity. The mask gasped and gritted its exposed teeth without hesitation. I tried to turn it over, but the uh, forehead of the mask stretched and the mouth howled in pain. The edges near where the ears should have been and the area under the nose seemed to be anchored at the bottom of the set. The mask was at once both living but completely manufactured. I pulled my knife from my pocket and opened it with a flick of the lever. The calm voice in my head from just moments ago had objections. That's vandalism. What if it is some kind of living thing? The voice that screamed back was overflowing with wonderment. We have to know what it is. Curiosity drove me. Curiosity positioned the cold steel blade to the patent leather-like surface of the mask near the bump for the nose. My desire to satisfy that curiosity pushed down on my blade. It slid through the side of the mask like a butter knife through cheesecake. The mask squealed like a pig until the knife was through, digging into the plastic bottom of the television set. The incision parted and slid open. Dozens of mealworms and stringy wet strands of black hair crawled and oozed from the wound. The mask slowly deflated into a heap. No wires, no skeleton of any kind. I looked at my knife. The mealworms were inching up it towards my hand. I scraped my knife off on the broken tube and put it away. I pulled open the cut I'd made in the mask with my stick. The bugs and hair kept pushing out of a hollow interstitial space in the center. The supply seemed to be endless. I reasoned it must be being piped up from the tree trunk. Separating the mask from the set was easy. It offered little resistance to being cut free. It flopped to the ground with a splat. The disturbing excretions kept coming from the mask, yet no more appeared inside the television. Like watching a train wreck, I stood there and I watched. I knelt down nearby as the mask heaved and retracted gently, birthing a steady flow of hair and insects. It kept coming for so long that a pile started to bulge over the remains of the mask. Some of the worms crawled off into the brush. Others were stuck, bound by the slimy black hair. When my stomach growled, I wasn't sure if it was because I needed to eat or just a warning to stop watching this demented peep show. I stumbled to my feet, using the tree trunk to steady myself. Under my hand, I, I felt a rough spot. When I moved my hand away, the imperfections in the silky trunk were my initials. Gouged into the smooth white wood, they stood there plain as day, the edges still crisp and freshly carved. I stared in disbelief. I dug at the gouges with my fingernails, trying to prove to myself that they were fake, that this was in my head. How long had I been out here? Was I getting dehydrated? 
The clock on my phone read 10.45 p.m. The sun seemed to slowly bob back and forth like a metronome in the clear blue sky. I scowled at myself to focus. The map had shown the trail going south from the main road. All I had to do was go north, and eventually I'd hit the road. The compass I kept on my keychain spun lazily, never lingering in the same direction for more than a moment. Ultimately, it felt like I had two options. The way I came, which was not from my car, or the way that I certainly had never been. The sun seemed to loom a little more off-center in one direction. I took that as setting in the west, and logic dictated that the way I was certain I had never been should be north. I was sure that north would take me to the road, based on the map and how relatively small the area was. South and east should have taken me to the river. I took comfort in the fact that the apparently north-running path was going uphill, even if only slightly. Over the course of several dozen steps, the minuscule slope gave way to a, uh, a more obvious incline. The crickets started to chirp, but oddly enough only when I stepped a little too near the grass, like insectile old men screaming to stay off their lawn. The further down the path I went, the less cover the canopy of the forest gave. After it had thinned out completely, the trees slowly started losing their bark giving the trail walls of bone-white tree trunks as far as the eye could see. It wasn't very long before none of the trees had any discernible bark left at all. The branches were gone, too, leaving only gnarled spires of white wood, like the ribs of fallen titans jutting towards the sky. The path started getting steep, the dirt becoming loose like sand. I used exposed tree limbs as handles to pull myself onward to keep me from falling back to where I came. Before I knew it, I was upon the crest of an enormous hill. All I could see for miles in the direction I had come were the jagged white points of the tree trunks. Branchless, stripped of bark, the nude trees stretched high, packed like the raised hairs of a frightened cat. Reason told me my car would be behind me. In front of me, there was only a slope on the horizon. It never curved back up. Yet there was a gurgling and babbling at my back. The trail ended here. The distinct sound of water kissing shore seemed to be coming from just beyond the trees. I quietly made my way through the trees in disbelief. My hands felt like they'd freeze to the bare trunks, even though summer was here in full force. From a distance and through the skeletal trees, it looked like a muddy river flowing, light brown banks glimmering under the sun. The river was still a way out. Even if it was the furthest from my car it could possibly be, it would definitely lead me to a road. I hurriedly climbed through the bush, only to be met with a soul-crushing disappointment. The closer I came through the dead branches and sticks, the more the sound changed. What my brain originally interpreted as the babbling of water became more obviously a tapping noise. The river was brimming and flowing with what had to be millions of shining emerald beetles. 
They struggled against the current they flowed with, their minuscule legs clicking against the exoskeletons of their neighbors. Their wings buzzed fruitlessly, cursed to their destiny of remaining part of the black and green chittering mass that coursed downstream. The shine and flow of their carapaces was nearly impossible to look away from, the droning cacophony impossible to tune out. My stomach turned and twisted at the sight, tumbling into knots that shamed the mealworms. Two thoughts stuck in my mind, escape and survive. As I trudged along the muddy bank, the tree line ebbed with the curves of the river. I kept my eyes straight ahead, scanning the horizon for a bridge or road. I glanced at the river, wanting the flowing tons of insects to be a figment of my imagination. The millions of legs seemed to wiggle in unison like millions of tiny fingers on an unnatural hand. I gagged and heaved unproductively. I braced myself against my thighs and hung my head while I tried to catch my breath. A sudden pressure made my neck tense, the feeling of being alone suddenly fleeing and being replaced by the tingling sensation of unseen eyes staring me down. Escape and survive. I resolved that I would not be prey. I tried to pretend that I didn't notice I was being watched. Without lingering, I scanned the forest quickly. There were figures camouflaged in the bone-white tree trunks. Bulbous, dusty black eyes almost blended in. The small spaces between the trees gave away their triangular heads. Silent and unblinking, it was nearly impossible to discern where the trees ended and their forms began. The eyes seemed to appear at nearly every height on the trees. The further downstream I trekked, the closer they drew to the tree line. The woods veered in close to the river, too close. My watchers appeared to be only a few rows of trees away from the riverbanks. I assured myself that if I survived the woods, they would leave me alone. I hurried my steps and avoided eye contact. I could see a sliver of green up ahead, but the further I hiked, the more it shrank. I looked back over my shoulder. The tree line was right up against the river now. My watchers were in the first row of trees, still mottled against the matching tone of the wood. But now I could see they were thin and towering, seven feet tall at least. I tried to continue on to the grassy patch ahead, but the sight of one of the watcher's profiles juxtaposed against the red and purple skyline stopped me dead in my tracks. It was insectile, yet distinctly humanoid. Their arms, if I dare call them arms, had an additional joint and section of limb where the wrist should have been. The extra limb terminated into a hand. And like the arms, the fingers displayed the same raptorial fold. Its body was long and thin, yet still retained some semblance of human curvature. A delicate curve of breasts, a uterine protrusion a little lower. Even further down, four thick legs held it up, followed by a long, slightly bulbous, insectile thorax. I crept along the bank, eyes glued on the unmoving abomination ahead of me. 
No eye movement, no idle twitching. It even lacked a detectable heave of breath. One misstep, one loud crunch of a stray beetle carapace, and that was no longer true. The stoic nature of the thing made it even worse when the grayish eyelid flicked open with the slurp of something coated in viscous slime. A very blue, unmistakably human eyeball darted around, searching and surveying the riverbank. It seemed like the eye passed over me a thousand times in the mere moments that I was frozen. Then the black pupil stared directly into mine. The creature snapped its body towards me, the eye stain locked on me as if it were a hinge the body were rotating around. I was mesmerized by the rhythmic motions of the raptorial fingers, lulled into less unease by its inaction. The fingers were a ploy, like a fisherman waving his hand over a crab, I almost missed its legs flexing. Brilliant blue wings spreading behind it and the movement of the mouth. The mouth that haunts me, the mouth that sometimes I still see on other people. The mouth that slowly spread into a million sharp appendages and protrusions that dripped with a black viscous saliva with a stench of hot tar. Staring into the void-like maw was more entrancing than anything I could ever imagine. The flexing and slow gnashing of the finger-like appendages around it, the darkness that swallowed light. Pure terror and disgust, tainted by fascination, filled me to the brim. My thoughts washed away, and I sang. Life could be a dream. If you could take me up to paradise up above If you would tell me I'm the only one that you love With streaming services and our phones full of music these days, people rarely turn on the good old radio, even during a long, boring drive. But in this tale, shared with us by author Derek Walker, we meet some friends who come up with a strange game which involves listening to the static on the car radio, and they never imagined how badly that could turn out. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Atticus Jackson, and Jesse Cornett. So stick with your own music or playing games of I Spy when driving. Just don't play the Radio Static Challenge. Three more teen auto deaths attributed to viral radio static challenge. Not the greatest headline to wake up to, but I guess that's my new reality. 
I've been keeping a tally of the number of deaths caused by the radiostatic challenge to date. So far I have 37. 37 deaths on my head. 37 incomplete families. Grieving communities. Empty chairs. All on my head. Anyone would tell me it's not my fault that I didn't intend for any of these deaths. I appreciate the sentiment. I really do. But I've made this bed. And I can't fall asleep in it. Why do they keep happening? Well, the challenge is unwittingly designed to self-perpetuate. Not everyone dies who does the challenge. In fact, a small percentage of people actually die. But the prospect of dying, or hallucinating, is high enough that it's seen as a challenge. Can you survive the radiostatic challenge? Since I'm the accidental founder of the Radiostatic Challenge, I'm creating a personal history. Something on the record that tells my side of the story. My friend Dom and I are district managers for a self-storage company in the Midwest. I oversee 15 sites in Ohio. Dom oversees 12 sites in Indiana. It's not my dream job, but it pays the bills and allows me to not be behind a desk all day. Occasionally, Dom and I will team up and hit some of our sites together. We conduct manager trainings, audit financials, interview employees, etc. The job requires a lot of driving. Something I don't mind. I jump between music, podcasts, audiobooks, and even the radio on my trips. There's nothing quite like listening to AM radio in rural Ohio, I'll tell you that. Although the self-storage gig is my sole source of income... I also run a podcast on the side. It's kind of mindless, live-in-the-moment type thing. I don't have many subscribers, but it's cheap therapy for me. I've always needed a creative outlet to function in the real world, and I find it incredibly therapeutic to research topics, write scripts, and record and edit shows. There's nothing more rewarding than when a fan reaches out on Twitter or Facebook and thanks me for a recent episode or tells me a story about how the show impacted their lives. Two weeks ago, while Dom and I were making the rounds together in northern Indiana, he complained to me about his always-on internet brain and his inability to focus. He had ADHD as a kid, but mostly had it under control by the time he was a senior in college. He's found that he does fine at work, but when he's in the car, he can't seem to turn his brain off. He told me he can barely get through a song without skipping. He tries podcasts, but can't focus longer than five minutes at a time. Audiobooks are simply not an option. Silence is not an option, because then all he can think about is when he's getting his next drink. We were on our second-to-last stop of the day in Pendleton, Indiana, getting ready to drive to Newcastle. We drove separately, since I'd be going home to Ohio and he'd be heading south to Indianapolis at day's end. In a moment of unexpected inspiration, I came up with a challenge. The challenge. I'd record a brief radio clip of static pulled from the good old AM radio, loop it in a 30-minute track, and save it as an mp3. I told Dom to wait for a minute. I ran to my car, recorded the static, uploaded and looped it on my laptop, and sent it to his phone. I proposed that both of us listen to nothing but the static for the full 30-minute drive. I told him our phones had to be on airplane mode, and we couldn't listen to anything else. The static had to be loud enough to drown out everything. Not the safest idea, I know. I told him that if he committed to the challenge up front, it would make it easier. He agreed and said he was actually kind of excited about it. 
I was too, to be honest. Before leaving, I started a Facebook Live session on my podcast's page. A handful of my fans hopped on. Hey guys! I put my arm around Dom. This is my buddy Dom, and Dom has a problem. One that most of us deal with. Erectile dysfunction. (laughs) (laughs) No. No, not that. He has a problem with something I like to call internet brain. This is something we talk about a lot on the show, but it's clear that it's taken a hold of Dom. I'm sure we're all familiar with the feeling, the anxiety that comes with constantly being plugged in. After a while, our brain is so used to the constant stimulation that our attention span shrinks until it's... Gone. Dom pretended to shed a tear. So, I've come up with a little challenge that we're both going to do on the 30-minute drive that's in our very near future. I've recorded a loop of AM radio static, and we're going to listen to it in our respective cars. And loud. I turned to Dom. Okay. Loud and clear. So we're going to do the... Uh, what should we call it? The radio static challenge. Very creative. The radio static challenge. I'll upload the static clip to my page right now, and we'll return and report in 30 minutes. Onward and upward. I finished the Facebook Live session and we got in our cars. My phone connected to Bluetooth, and I started the static track. We pulled out of the parking lot and headed toward the freeway. Dom pulled up to me in the first red light and rolled down the window, the static blaring in his car. He pretended to ignore me. I rolled my eyes. As soon as I hit the freeway, I zoned out. Like, in a coma while awake kind of zoned out. Driving a car in silence is its own version of white noise, but there's enough variation in the sound of the tires moving against different surfaces, changing lanes, the sound of cars speeding by, the occasional wind gust, or the click of the AC turning on, but with static, there's no variations. And I learned very quickly that the brain does not like it. At least mine didn't. After about 15 minutes of driving mindlessly, the radio static filling the car, I started to hear overtones. First it was a high-pitched whir, kind of like a boiling tea kettle. Then it sounded like a shrill, piercing scream. The overtones seemed to rotate between the two for five minutes before dropping pitch a few octaves. The sound became a deep, guttural noise that came in and out like a sci-fi sound effect. I knew it was a product of my imagination, that the clip I recorded was only a few seconds long and was nothing but static. The longer I drove, the more my purview began to narrow until I felt like I was driving in an infinitely long tunnel. Thinking back to the experience, I don't recall passing or being passed by any cars my whole drive, which obviously would not have been true. At some point, once the hypnotic effect of the static was in full bloom, my mind became razor sharp. In an instant, I had what I'd call a perfect understanding, but not in a good way. I suddenly knew that life on Earth is the only life in the entire universe. There is absolutely no intelligent life anywhere else in existence. We are all there is. I realize that there's no greater meaning to life. We are pre-programmed to survive. That's how we evolved enough to become intelligent. That's why we build and develop societies. To survive. That's why we have children, to perpetuate our kind. 
Once we've lived long enough to have children and raise them to a point of independence, we are no longer needed. I understood that our freedom to choose, our free will, is simply a construct. We are nothing but animals with animal instincts, and a brain smart enough to tell itself stories that will make us think we're in control. For the first time, I internalized that I was born alone, and that I'd die alone, and that I would return to the earth when it's all over, and my mind would fall into an endless pit of blackness. Of course, I can't prove any of those claims, but I believe it all. It's like those realizations bypassed my rational brain and went straight to my soul. The sound of knocking on my car window snapped me out of my hypnosis. Are you okay in there? It was Lee, the manager for the Newcastle store. I had made it to the Newcastle store in what seemed like a few seconds. Like a few seconds, or a few years. I opened the door and stepped out. What the hell are you listening to? Is this another one of those new age things y'all millennials are into? I looked into his eyes for a moment and couldn't help but feel that his irises contained their own universes. An odd sensation. Dom arrived 30 seconds later, 21 pilots blaring in his car. He stepped out with his signature dopey grin. What happened to the static challenge, man? Oh man, it was great. After like five minutes of the static, I felt like a new man. Wasn't the idea that we were going to do it for the whole 30 minutes? Well, I mean, it worked for me after five, so what's the point of wasting another 25? Whatever. We followed Lee into his store. During the side inspection, I felt unbelievably hollow. Like my worldview had been flipped upside down. I'm not religious or anything. I just never cared much for speculating on the unknowable. But now I somehow knew the unknowable. I walked down the hall to my apartment just in time to see a damn mouse slip under my door. Better find that before I go to bed, I thought. Or tonight there will be no sleep. As soon as I stepped inside, I got onto my laptop to take the radiostatic challenge video down. The video itself had been viewed 1,744 times. There were 54 comments of people committing to take the challenge, and I had 18 messages in my inbox. Something that simply doesn't happen for a mediocre, part-time podcaster like myself. My heart sank. The first message I opened was from Dane Eggett, one of my biggest podcast fans. He told me he had downloaded the Radiostatic Challenge file and had done it that afternoon. My heart raced as I read his message, but he wasn't freaked out or upset. He was grateful. He told me that in those moments, about 20 minutes into the challenge, he was dawned with a profound sense of purpose. He didn't tell me exactly what his purpose was, but he said that he'd never been so at ease with existing ever before. He reposted the radiostatic challenge on his page, which seemed to generate a decent amount of activity. The messages showed mixed experiences or possibly mixed reactions to the same experience. Some were scared, some were relieved, some were dull. Many were simply weirded out. Several fans said they shared my post. I grabbed a beer from the fridge, prompting the mouse to flee from its corner hiding place to my bathroom. I shrugged with indifference. Nothing matters, after all, I thought, 
and returned to my laptop. After finishing the messages, I decided again that it would be best to take the post down altogether. It might be like pulling the rug out from my only fans who undoubtedly spent a lot of time writing their experiences alongside reposting the challenge. Oh well. I finished a second beer and left for a late night grocery store trip to get mousetraps. The thoughts kept coming in. Well, it felt more like thoughts were disappearing, leaving me with nothing but a dark, empty, blank slate. That's what these horrible thoughts, realizations, were. It's the knowledge that was always there, but that gets covered up as soon as we're spoon-fed religion and culture and customs. Wanting to be discreet and having an odd fear of stepping on a mousetrap in the middle of the night, I got an ultrasonic mouse repeller, a mouse deterrent that plays a certain frequency, one that goes unnoticed to humans, but that makes the mice stay away. I kept thinking on the drive home about frequencies. Different frequencies spark different reactions in different species. What if a clip of static I took from the radio that day was emitting some kind of frequency that was causing this reaction in people? That's the best theory I've been able to come up with to date. When I got home, I got the first message. The first suicide note. It was from Dane Eggett. He said that he understands it all, that it's time for him to go. I didn't know what that meant, and he didn't respond to any of my messages asking for clarifications. It was ambiguous, but it was enough to prevent me from having a decent night's sleep. My fears were confirmed the next morning, when I got a reply from Dane's account, only it wasn't from Dane. It was from his mom. She said he took his life sometime in the night, likely soon after sending that message to me. I was the last person Dane messaged. I was crushed. I came clean to Dane's mom, told her that the radio static challenge was meant purely to be a mindfulness exercise, nothing else. She was understanding and asked if I'd taken it down already. I said yes. What I didn't realize at that time is that someone, well, lots of people, had ripped the video and reposted it many times over. I found about 20 different ripped postings of my clip on YouTube. There were tens of thousands of views between them all. But I don't think the radiostatic challenge would have had the effect it did if the national news hadn't picked up Dane's story immediately. I guess all the Slender Man and Momo happenings were good business for the news media, because they didn't shy away from Dane's suicide. Colorado Man commits suicide after doing radiostatic challenge. They had to have known the way they covered Dane's suicide would spark more. Despite having deleted the video early on and creating an apology video, I was blocked on YouTube and Facebook. I get it. I'm the guy who started this thing. Didn't matter my intentions. It started with me. Ten more suicides happened that week. I did an interview with my local NBC station. Then one with CNN the night after. I explained the original intent behind the clip and that I never meant anyone any harm. I purposely neglected discussing my dark experience with the challenge. Twenty suicides happened the next week. The videos continued racking up views. The comments grew darker. What began as a fun challenge became a drug for many. People said the more times they listened to it, the deeper their understanding got. What pisses me off more than anything is the undying media coverage of the challenge and the suicides. They could have prevented this tragedy to a large degree, but they don't care. It's good TV. It's clickbait. Lots of ad revenue. 
Now the suicide count is at 37, and I'm at a loss. There's no sign of them stopping, though I'm sure it'll stop at some point. All viral challenges like these do eventually, right? There's an overpopulation problem anyway. You're doing the world a favor. That's just a sample of the dark thoughts I'm plagued with day after day. I'm signing off now, because I'm doing the radiostatic challenge again. Only this time, I know what I'm listening for. I'm either coming out of this thing with a deeper understanding of what's really going on, and I can work to stop it, or I will become victim number 38. In our final tale, we meet a woman who never forgot the cult classic horror movie from her youth. She was obsessed with it, the biggest draw being that the end of the film has always been missing. But as we learn in this tale from author R.T. Green, when she's given an opportunity to revitalize her hometown's local theater, she'll finally be able to watch not just the movie, but its lost ending. Performing this tale are Aaron Lillis, Dan Zapula, Nicole Goodnight, and Graham Rowett. So let some movies live only in your fond memories. You don't need to see what's on the final reel. The best horror film I ever saw was incomplete. It was called The Town That Dreams Forgot. Have you heard of it? I would be surprised if you had. No one went to see it during its initial theatrical run. It was one of those weird art house horror movies that got greenlit in the early 1970s, before the slasher genre really got going, and there was still money in the more experimental and weird side of the horror scene. The plot concerned a town called Anadarko a name shamelessly appropriated from a Native American tribe, and its descent into an unspecified madness as the town's isolation drives them to murder each other. What makes the film fascinating and utterly unwatchable to some people is that nothing really happens. When it seems like a character is about to die in some horrible way, the movie cuts away from their scene and they never appear again. Now, I know elliptical editing is definitely a thing. I actually paid attention in my media arts elective. But this movie does it every damn time. I found a number of reviews calling it boring and downright maddening. But I tend to agree with a sentiment that Pauline Kael wrote in her unpublished review, where she said it was a lyrical oddity among schlock, a nightmare half-remembered by a waking mind. Legend has it that the director hypnotized a studio executive to finance the film. No sane person would have approved such a project by a director who made no films before or after, at least as far as we know. See, that's part of what made the story of this movie so tantalizing to me when I was a teenager. The director, writer, crew, and even the studio remain unidentified. 
This is because the final reel of the film, approximately 10 minutes of footage, was lost. This wasn't a fluke. The reel was missing from every print ever distributed. We know this because there were no end credits on the version of the movie that played in theaters. A rumor started to circulate that this reel is where this unnamed director had placed all their pent-up violence, mayhem, and madness. Where they revealed what was truly driving everyone mad and showed the violence crescendo into a bloody fever dream. This rumor maintains that the distributor had been so disturbed by the climax of the movie that they actually removed the end of the film, thinking it would sell better than the fucked-up climax the director had envisioned. To make matters worse, copies of the movie slowly disappeared over the years, either recycled or destroyed by bankrupt theaters, or absorbed into private collections to gather dust. By the time I was born in the late 1980s, the film was more legend than fact, and the director never resurfaced to claim ownership of their work. So you can imagine this story was absolute catnip to me growing up in the 1990s. Urban Legends forums spread every little detail people knew about the film, passing descriptions of scenes and even technical specifications down like oral history. And I, as a chubby goth girl in the Midwest with a love for cinema and fairly lenient parents, ate it all up. I wanted to see the town that dreams forgot so badly that I even snuck out to an all-night Halloween cult movie marathon, all because someone online had hinted there might be a copy among the old Giallo and Mondo films being screened there. I had been willing to sit through 12 hours of softcore torture porn for the mere chance of glimpsing this movie. I was more than dedicated. I was obsessed. But like many teenage obsessions, my interest in the town that dreams forgot dwindled as I got older. I grew up, left my childhood home for college, and never looked back. I still loved horror movies, but my obsession with this particular film went from my main focus to just one in a very long line of trivia items I knew about indie horror. Life rolled on for me. I went to college, fell in and out of relationships with men, women, and non-binary people, got a degree in business, and graduated with my entrepreneurial dreams right as the Great Recession was hitting. Needless to say, all my businesses failed, and I had to swallow the bitter pill of moving back home in my late 20s. This turned out to be a blessing in disguise, because just a month after being back home, I received a phone call. Well, I received a voicemail on my parents' landline anyway. Hi, Mr. and Mrs. Schaefer. Uh, this is Ed Wexler. I was told that Lana was back in town. If you could let her know that I called, I'd really appreciate it. I have a business idea that I think she'd be interested in. Needless to say, I called him back right away. I didn't remember Eddie Wexler well. He was another outcast in high school, but we belonged to two entirely different circles of outsiders. He was in band, I was a theater tech. Two entirely different worlds of nerd. But there was something in his voice that I couldn't ignore. A strange urgency. The phone only rang once before he picked up. Hello, Ed. It's me, Lana. Lana, great to hear you're back in town. Did you get my message? Listen, Eddie, it's been a long time, but I'm just in town until I can get my feet back on the ground. I don't mean to stick around for a serious amount of time, but... He interrupted me then. 
I don't know if it was deliberate, but what he said shut down every excuse I had in my brain. Lakeshore Cinema is going up for sale. I paused, registering those seven words. Lakeshore Cinema was to my childhood what church is to a young evangelical. It was my place of worship. Hello? Lana? Yeah, I'm here. Uh, Did you just say what I thought you said? Yep. It's going up for auction next week, and I think we'll be able to take it over. Hold on, Eddie. We don't have the money. Meet me there, and we'll talk over the logistics. It turns out, I didn't have to worry. Ed's parents, unsurprisingly, were loaded. All the previous owners needed was a business plan worked up by yours truly to seal the deal. Ed's plan was that we could co-program the theater. He would run our matinees with the cult animated films he adored, while I could program midnight screenings of my favorite horror pictures. I gotta say, it was a tempting pitch. When we were first let into the musty old building, the smell of memories and possibility washed over me. I remembered taking in those awful Mondo documentaries with my neighbors and friends, my heart swelling as we all screamed at each new atrocity on the screen. I wouldn't watch any of those movies ever again, but I'll remember us laughing and applauding together until the day I die. The memories filled me like heroin, and that's before we even got to the basement. Lakeshore Cinema had the biggest vault of strange and obscure film prints I had ever seen. Cobwebs strung between them, but I didn't care. The logistical side of my brain was overrun by the side of me that just couldn't wait to get my hands on those cans. Film cans, I mean. God, it sounded like a sexist 1930s detective there. We set about refurbishing the place that afternoon. Ed's parents gave us enough of a loan to acquire the building on the condition that we repay it in installments going forward. I was fine with that. Even in economically strapped times, people still wanted to go to a cheap matinee or indulge their desires for weird movies. Ed and I did most of the work ourselves. Cleaning the concession stands, the seats, the bathrooms. Fuck me, the bathrooms. Single-screen cinemas feel small when packed with people. But when you have to clean every inch and make it look presentable, it felt as big as a Notre fucking dom. When I finally got to the projection booth, I took a moment to take it in. It was like an analog control center. The sort of thing you imagine at the center of a Jules Verne submarine or airship. I must have been standing there for a while because Ed came in to check on me. Is everything okay? More than okay. It's perfect. I expected our premiere to be a disaster. It was a first for both of us, and we didn't know whether there would be interest. We spread word as best we could, but Ed was a nerdy recluse who lived on the edge of town, and I was the prodigal daughter of a shoe salesman. We weren't exactly local celebrities, but people came. They came in droves. I didn't know this place was so popular, even in its heyday. I suppose they saw the under new management sign on the marquee and couldn't resist the pull of nostalgia. I wish I could tell you what movies we were screening, but because of what happened later that night, I've completely forgotten. 
Even after going to one of the most famous party schools in Connecticut, I never quite forgot how to not be an introvert. I wore my most flattering Elvira-inspired black dress and did my best to put on the face of a good host, but I was out of my depth almost immediately, swept up in the swarm of enthusiastic moviegoers and curious questions. The only time I had a moment's peace was during the movie, before which I had to give a brief monologue reintroducing the theater while Ed strung up the projector. I must have looked like quite the mess standing in front of the projector with my handful of note cards, awkwardly thanking our donors for making this night possible, all that cliché claptrap. I didn't have stage fright, though. It'll sound strange, but the projector beaming into my eyes made me feel like I was talking to God, not just a room full of sweaty humans. The thumbs up from the tiny projector window was my cue to slip back into the shadows and let celluloid take the wheel. Next thing I knew, I was standing in the lobby while everyone filed out, thanking me for restoring their favorite local attraction. Without my knowledge, I had been caught in a ring of film devotees, listening as I rattled off trivia on autopilot. It was like I'd been saving every did-you-know nugget for this very moment. And that's when I saw her. She wasn't in the ring of film fans, but loitering behind the now-closed concession stand, 20 feet or so from where I was standing in the lobby. She was the sort of beauty you expect to see at events like these, but rarely do. Pale as you can get, dressed in a thin black tank top and leather pants, her hair also black. She looked like what I wanted to look like when going through my goth phase in high school. A phase that had never really gone away, only went into hibernation. I thanked everyone around me for coming before making a beeline for this strange young woman. You sure do know your stuff. Spend a lot of time on IMDb. And watching documentaries. Did you enjoy the movie? Sure. It was cool. What, um, are you new in town? I haven't seen you around. Oh, I've been here about a year now. Just don't go out much because, uh, the nightlife in this town is so fucking dead. I smiled politely and told her I hoped tonight was the exception. I couldn't help but fixate on her lower lip. A silver ring was set perfectly in the center, and it bobbed up and down when she spoke. No, this is good. I was super bummed at first because the theater was closing down, and well, I knew I wasn't going to save enough money to run away from home anytime soon, so I was kind of stuck. Well... If there's anything I can do to make your time here any more enjoyable, let me know. I said this as casually as I could, but part of me hoped she read the subtext in the words. I hadn't seriously dated anyone in upwards of two years, and she... She made me feel like an alcoholic in a distillery. This mysterious goth smirked. Don't you want to know my name before asking me out? I stammered something, but she saved me from having to confirm whether I was flirting or not. I'm Edith. Edith Paget. Oh, that's uh, that's a it's a good good name. <laughs> mm, do you think it fits me? Edith put her hands on her hips in a way that subtly pulled her tank top tightly around her chest. 
My breath caught when I realized she wasn't wearing a bra and that both her nipples were pierced. I had the strangest feeling that this was a well-rehearsed maneuver on her part, but I had no intention of gopping like a drooling John at a strip club. The professional side of my brain was waking up and she needed to assert herself. Absolutely. Well, I hope to see you at the next screening, Edith Paget. Edith smiled, recognizing my change in tone for what it was. Huh? She vanished without another word, her eyes lingering on mine ever so slightly before she turned and vanished out into the night. It was only then that I noticed the theater lobby was completely empty. The stragglers had all filtered away while I was clumsily flirting with Edith. My eyes were drawn to a vintage poster on the wall, a 24 by 36 inch print of deep red that showed a doll hanging itself. The poster shifted, and I realized there were a pair of legs coming from underneath it. It was Ed, straining with the effort. A little help, Lana? I ran over and helped him set the poster right. He emerged from behind it, hair slick with sweat, but his eyes alight with passion. So? So what? A success, right? A smashing fucking success? Absolutely. <laughs> Come here, bring it in. We laughed and hugged before both collapsing onto the floor by the ticket booth. Our gamble had paid off, and we spent the rest of the night eating the dregs from the popcorn maker. If only we knew the joy wouldn't last. I'll spare you the boring details of what it's like running a repertoire theater in this economy, but needless to say, I had my hands full for the next couple of months. When I wasn't doing payroll paperwork or making bulk orders for concessions, I was down in the basement cataloging the hundreds, no, thousands of film prints that Lakeshore had stored away. I didn't have time to privately screen each and every one of them, so usually what I did was look at the title and company of each film, helpfully printed on the film can, and deep dive into my old stomping grounds on cult movie forums to put together the most effective pitch for genre buffs and casual fans alike. As a way of gauging interest, I even posted to the forum, what cult movie would you want to see at Lakeshore Cinema? To my delight, my new programming plan had both local and out-of-town interest, and it was only a matter of time before one of the commenters brought up my white whale, the town that dreams forgot. I jokingly replied to the comment saying, Me too, buddy. Of course, that was before I found our copy. In hindsight, I shouldn't have assumed that Lakeshore Cinema didn't have a copy of the most infamous cult horror film of the 1970s. It wasn't among the main shelves, but tucked away in a closet off of the main office, as if it was waiting to be sorted. A stack of film cans of varying sizes, but labeled as if they were supposed to be in order. The first five reels were 35 millimeter. The next two were 16. And after an inexplicable reel of eight millimeter, which I almost thought was a joke, it was back to 35 for the rest of the film. As websites had long rumored, it would require simultaneous use of both a 35 millimeter and a 16 millimeter projector. 
I didn't know how we'd screen the 8mm chapter, and whether it even was intended to be part of the movie or was just a supplemental piece. And, of course, the final reel was missing. That last part was the least surprising, but somehow I still felt a pang of disappointment. I would be still consuming an incomplete version of the film I'd been seeking out since I was an acne-riddled teenager. Always the bridesmaid. <sighs> a loud knocking at the door made me almost jump out of my skin. I was alone in the theater that day, Ed having driven up to Boston to pick up a print of The Secret of Nim we were renting. I knew, even before I left my office, that it would be Edith standing at the glass doors of the theater. The sunlight streaming in gave her a halo like some kind of dark angel. I hadn't seen her since the premiere, but she had not changed in the slightest detail as far as I could tell. Same black tank top, same black pants, same black, well, everything. She mouthed something through the glass, which I couldn't quite make out. I was still dazed from my discovery moments earlier when I cracked the door open. You look like you've seen a ghost, Maestro. The lip ring glinted beneath her grin. What are you doing here? I got out of school early. I thought I'd swing by. I was thrown by this answer. You're in school? Uh, what, um, where do you go? That grin again. Oh, I long since dropped out of an institution. My parents are rigorous homeschoolers. So, why are you here? I wanted to, uh, take a film course. It was unprofessional of me to let her in. I know that. I was just so overwhelmed by my discovery that I had to share it with someone, anyone. And well, a woman who I was embarrassingly attracted to had just appeared on my doorstep. Life, lemons, ever the twain shall meet. So I told her everything. Well, not everything. I told her that I had a special film I was about to watch and she was welcome to join me. I was honestly surprised when she said yes. She still struck me as someone who went to the cinema as an excuse to get out of the house rather than appreciate the art of film, but I'm judgmental that way. What matters is she came in, and I was practically shaking with anticipation. I strung up the first couple of reels in the 35mm projector, figuring I could switch it over to the 16 after the first hour. Now, let me be perfectly clear. I don't like distractions in the theater any distractions. One time in high school, I went on a date to see The Lost World in the theater. When the guy tried to make out with me, I bit his lips so hard it drew blood. Fortunately, he got the message. Let less cultured couples make out and give each other blowjobs in the darkened theater. I was always there for the movie. So when I say what was about to happen was extremely out of character for me, I want you to know I mean it. To share such a niche interest with a crush was a big risk, but I was grateful to not be alone. We sat in the very first row at my insistence. I didn't want to watch from the back row like I usually did during our packed screenings. I wanted to be overwhelmed and transported to the town that dreams forgot. Nothing I heard about the film could have prepared me for the first shot. 
no logos, no fanfare, no prelude of any kind. Just pain. The film opens with the interior of a church. Completely dark, but for the light seeping in through the windows. A single woman sits in the pews, weeping. From then on, the film plays just as I'd imagined it. Small-town drama, thick with atmosphere. Anonymous actors giving understated but credible performances as one by one they disappear between scenes. The horror was never in what was on screen, but what the director always kept just out of frame. The absences. Something strange happened about a half hour into the film. I felt hands on me. Pale hands, like delicate spiders searching for a place to build a web. A full shiver passed up my spine. I hoped those were Edith's hands, but I was afraid to look. In my mind, the theater was now full of these thin, white, hairless spiders crawling over everything, gentle touch hiding the venom in their fangs. If I were to die from these creatures, let me die thinking Edith felt the same way about me that I did about her. When I tore my eyes away from the screen, all thoughts of being swarmed by arachnids vanished. Because she was there, closer than anyone had been to me in years. And I, Lana Schaefer, who once tore a boy's lip open with her teeth rather than make out in a movie theater, gave myself over to Edith Paget in the flickering darkness. What was most amazing about the experience was that I didn't lose track of the film. If anything, I felt like we became a part of it. The flickering light of the projector provided us only glimpses of each other. A hand there, a pale arm there, a wisp of a thigh. The sounds of the film were enrapturing. Our moans and sighs of pleasure fit in perfectly between the muted conversations of the characters. Like the film itself was breathing in satisfaction as each cast member vanished from posterity forever. I don't remember switching the projectors to play the 16mm reels and then back to the 35. I don't remember much of anything besides her and the movie playing across her alabaster skin. To this day, I'm not entirely sure the movie didn't play itself. Then it was over. We lay on the stage in front of the screen, clothes spread out around us. We were both looking up as the last few shots of the town that dreams forgot shimmered above us. The infamous final shot, as the intrepid outsider invites the remaining members of the cast into the town hall, ostensibly to explain what was going on, played out. And then, a blank projector screen. As if waking from a dream, I realized what had happened. I'd fucked someone in a movie theater. I'd fucked someone in my movie theater. And there she was, lying beside me, eyes fixed on the blank white projection screen. <laughs> so, is the filming complete? I told her the rest of the story. About the film, about the missing reel, about my lifelong obsession with seeing even this much of the print. Halfway through my telling, her eyes fogged up. 
as if she was looking very far away. Before I finished, she rose to her feet and ran toward the projection booth, not bothering to dress herself. I scrambled after her, pulling my blouse on as I went. I found her standing beside the stack of film cans, clad only in bracelets and a handful of back tattoos. I've seen these before. My heart skipped a beat. Ever since I was young, my dad loved collecting old knickknacks. It didn't matter what they were, just that they were random and rare. He had stacks of rare stamps despite never caring about stamp collections. He had coins that were long since out of print, and he had a film can just like these, but it was labeled Real 12 Dreamtown. I think I stopped breathing for a whole 30 seconds after she said this. Edith turned to me, catching my alarm in those green eyes, and reading my question before I even had breath to ask it. It's still there. I can get it for you. I didn't know what to say. How to say yes to this favor that would turn my world upside down. You might think I was transfixed by the idea of financial bliss that would come from being the first theater to show this film in its entirety. But really, all that I could think of was being able to see it for myself. Why would you go out on a limb like this for me? We've barely... I mean, I hardly know you. Take a good look if you want. That's not what I mean. I have a good feeling about you. That's all. Several good feelings. Um, it's a rare person who can breathe life into this shithole. The excuse went down easy. I bought it all, hook, line, and sinker. I received a visitor later that night, long after my parents went to sleep. It wasn't Edith, or even Ed, who got back well after my femme fatale had vanished out through the back door. I told him about my discovery of the film print, and bless him, he tried to seem excited for me. I knew that he wasn't really a horror guy, but I was touched by the effort. I would never tell him about the man that visited me that night, though. If he couldn't handle horror movies, no way he could handle this character. There was no ring from the doorbell or even a knock. I just kind of felt that someone was at the door. Someone who needed to be let in. The first thing I noticed about him was his height. He was maybe six foot six and stooped in a way that only someone who spends his days at the desk can be. He wore a pork pie hat and a black and white suit, which seemed very poorly fitted. His skin, where I could see it, was clammy and tinted blue as if suffering from dehydration. His voice was a breathless whisper. Miss Schaefer, I presume. Yes? Can I help you? You can. I would like to talk to you about a specific item in your possession. I would have shut the door in his face, but something about his posture unnerved me. His hands gripped the doorframe as if his legs would not support his weight at all. Both of them were gray, with fingernails filed to a point. I had no way of telling what he would do if I refused him. I stepped aside and he walked into the room. Although walked is probably the wrong term. 
it was more like he dragged himself into the room. His hands gripped every surface they could, pulling the rest of him along like a strange upright sloth until he could settle into a chair and resume his vaguely human appearance. What he said as soon as he sat down gave me chills, even on a hot summer night. Don't play the final reel. Who are you? I'm an agent of sorts. I represent a single client, one whose work is of particular interest to you, I'm told. I knew who he was referring to right away. The filmmaker, or filmmakers, behind the town that dreams forgot. What is their name? They wouldn't want me to disclose that information. Why are you here, then, if your client wants to remain so mysterious? My client wanted me to deliver a message. I can repeat it. He didn't have to. I don't even have the final reel. Why would I even try Don't to- lie. You will come into possession of it within the week, and you will try to exhibit it. Should I expect a cease and desist notice? Such an action would require my client to reveal themselves, and that is something they cannot do. I can only hope your best judgment will prevail. Like all the others I've spoken to over the last four decades. This was news to me. I was unaware people had tried to screen the full film before. What would you do to me if I played it? I won't need to do anything. The next thing I remember is closing the door. Outside was nothing but impenetrable blackness, so I couldn't tell if there had been a visitor at all. But his warning echoed in my mind afterwards anyway. Don't play the final reel. Why hadn't he gone to Edith? For that matter, how would he have known that Edith had promised to let me use her dad's print? The thought of that slinking salamander of a man lurking in the back of the theater uh, sent a shiver up my spine and spoiled the pleasant memory of hooking up with Edith at the theater. At least for the time being. After all, I I had no intention of doing as he suggested. The final reel was somehow less intimidating than I expected. Some part of me anticipated it being dropped off by men in hazmat suits or priests furiously trying to exercise the celluloid. But what Ed showed me was an ordinary film can, silver rim a bit tarnished, but otherwise unremarkable. As promised, it read, Real 12 Dreamtown on the side. He handed it to me. How do you know the pageants? I met their daughter at our premiere. We've been hanging out. Shit, I didn't even know they had a kid. Why? What's their deal? Nothing crazy. I mean, they're just a weird rich couple who moved to town while you were off at school, and the rest of us were living that small-town life. I hear he's been funneling money into small businesses around town, getting some serious puppet master vibes. Maybe he's just a philanthropist type, improving the community because he can. Have you ever met a rich person? Touché. 
Obviously, I resisted viewing the final reel on its own. I needed to see the whole picture end to end. We did minimal advertising for our screening of this once-in-a-lifetime movie night. I knew where we could easily fill the auditorium. I took a crappy digital picture of Reel 12 and uploaded it to only one of my many preferred online forums and hinted that there would only be a limited number of tickets. Our website was soon flooded with requests. I fully expected Ed to want to back out, or not being his thing, but I was shocked when he confronted me the day before our midnight screening. He had a face that didn't wear serious well, but he was trying his very hardest. I'll run the projectors tonight. Are you sure? It's kind of a weird setup. Nah, I know tonight is important to you. Tell me what to do, I'll run it a dozen times, and you can be in the audience. I wish I hadn't told him. I really, really wish I hadn't. But I did. I saw the strange slinking agent one time before the premiere. I was locking up Tuesday night, 24 hours before our special screening. It was lightly raining and I could see the reflections of the street light and marquee in the pavement. While switching off the bright theater lights, I saw a shadow of a person moving through the mostly deserted street. There was no mistaking those long, dangling arms, like a sallow ape trying to pass as human. I walked as briskly as I could down the wet streets. Every slight movement, every cat in an alleyway caught my eye and made my hair stand on end. He didn't say he was going to harm me, right? Another movement in an alleyway between shops. No, he said he wouldn't have to. A scraping sound. Is that his fingernails against the pavement? I quickened my pace. Thoughts of him crushing the life out of me, filling my head. He'll still be able to reach me. Something stirred my hair. It feels like fingers. I was only moments away from home. I could see the porch light floating tantalizingly just behind the trees. I made it. I slammed the door behind me and turned both the door lock and the deadbolt. I stood for a moment there, leaning against the door, waiting for my pulse to return to a slow enough beat that I'd be able to sleep. Part of me was convinced I would never be able to. But if this agent wanted to dissuade me from showing his movie, stalking me had the opposite effect. If he thought he could intimidate me into canceling the screening, he had another thing coming. He could show up if he wanted. I'd even leave a free ticket for him at will call. Oh, who was I kidding? He'd definitely already seen it. The day of the premiere felt deceptively ordinary. In spite of barely sleeping at all that night, I was wide awake and alert. I got all of my errands out of the way by noon and was able to run through the projection procedure with Ed multiple times in the early afternoon until I was sure he wouldn't make any mistakes in screening the film. Our solution to the three formats was elegant. We'd found a Super 8 projector at a yard sale. 
and managed to mount it toward the front few rows for that weird 8mm segment around the midpoint. Ed would have to be light on his toes, but he would be able to do it. He quipped that the perk of this whole setup was that he'd be too busy switching projections to see any of the film itself. The line started at 10 p.m. Even people who hadn't bought tickets online came from out of town to see it. The variety of alternative fashion styles that showed up on Lakeshore's doorstep was astonishing to see in such a small and normally fairly conformist community. And then when the local theatergoers arrived, the crowd had become a blend of small-town banality and punk rock chic. It was standing room only inside the theater. I left a sign on the marquee saying that no one would be let in after the show began. It was a total Hitchcock move, and I was kind of delighted to build that kind of suspense. Five minutes before midnight, Edith arrived, just like I hoped she would. She wasn't dressed in goth minimalism like when I first met her, or in her birthday suit like I'd last seen her, but in a deep purple vest, deep green button-up, flowing sleeves, and bolo tie. The kind of outfit that only a queer mistress of the night could pull off. So I was stunned to see that her parents were accompanying her. And they weren't a regular Gomez or Morticia either. They were a banal, white, middle-aged couple, alarming only for their normalcy. I don't remember our conversation. It was, no doubt, very awkward. But I do remember the conversation I had with Edith as the elder Pagets went inside. What do you think? They weren't what I was expecting. Um, don't let their tweedy white parent look fool you. They're as evil as they come. Is that so? Devils under the skin. Both of them. Something about her words stirred uncertainty in my mind, but she expertly wiped it out with a kiss before disappearing inside to join the devils. At midnight on the dot, I stepped inside to cheers, exultation, and adulation from the assembled crowds. Those who knew me from the forums and knew the reputation of the film itself were like the streets of Boston after the Red Sox won the World Series. The rest of the crowd, I suppose, were moved by their enthusiasm. As I had countless times before, I stepped up and gave my introduction. That two-and-a-half-minute speech was my masterpiece. During that also-brief time, I was a legend in a community I had only lived on the fringes of. Ed gave me his thumbs up, and I stepped out of the way. In the cheer that followed, I thought I heard a single dissenting voice screaming no, but it was swallowed before I could register its presence. The beginning of the film played without much fanfare. On the second watch, the flaws in the film were a little more apparent to me. The entrancing atmosphere was somewhat one note, and the director was clearly more in love with their establishing shots than the actors. I made a mental note to find the director's bio online once I saw the famously elusive credits. A strange energy started to sweep over the crowd around a half hour in. There were a few snores, some walkouts, but the energy in general seemed to be... tense. Heads stirred. Not restlessly, but like reeds in a gentle breeze. They were all enraptured, in the way that Edith and I had been enraptured when we first watched the film. 
When the first switch to 16mm happened, I could feel the atmosphere of the room crack ever so slightly. A few couples here and there were already amorously wrapped around each other, and I was getting hot under the collar myself. As a way of preserving my dignity, I left the auditorium to check on Ed. I told one of the ushers, a dutiful boy named Terry, to politely cool down the more enthusiastic couples. I first knew something was wrong when I reached the projection room. A wave of hot, sticky air slapped me in the face as I stepped in. I heard Ed groan from within. It's so hot. He was naked, his usually red face flushed and sweating. He made no move to cover himself up, just watched the film reels spool over and over and over, waiting for the next one. I told him that I could handle it if he wanted to get some air. I can't leave. His hands performed the actions of switching out the reels, but they moved sharply and mechanically, as if controlled by something that didn't care for his exhaustion or his comfort. I heard a sharp sizzling sound as his hand plucked the take-up reel off the projector and replaced it. It shouldn't have heated up that much. A cry from outside drew my attention. I ran to the window and peeked out. In the auditorium, a fight had broken out. I saw my usher, Terry, stumble backwards from the front row, head hitting one of the columns that flanked the screen. A small splat of blood colored the screen, not looking out of place in the moody gothic drama that played out on it. The audience around him was no longer a normal theater crowd. They were all writhing, like maggots on a corpse. The sudden violence against poor Terry seemed to send a shockwave through the seats. Their movement seemed to be growing less amorous and more vicious. And dear God, it was hot. I noticed myself subconsciously unbuttoning my blouse. I had to force my hands to stay at my sides. I stepped back into the theater to restore order, but in the momentary wisp of darkness between the booth and the auditorium, I heard a familiar voice whisper in my ear. It is... Too late. When I entered the auditorium, the crowd was in a rapture of violence and pleasure. Some couples were still obliviously lost in each other. Others had begun animalistic fights for seemingly no reason. Straighted to the strange sight of a fully naked man and woman fucking each other while the man took blows about the head from an agitated bystander. Soon he had passed out from blood loss, and the woman tore into the bystander's throat with her teeth. In the center aisle, the best seats in the house, Edith was strangling her father with her bolo tie, while her mother was dragged across the floor by an out-of-towner. Popcorn kernels stuck in her perfectly sculpted hairdo. I should have been horrified by all this, but I understood. The town that dreams forgot was never about the film itself. It was a reflection on the audience. We were the cast of our bloody melodrama, 
And the film was the movie theater, slowly emptying of patrons as they watched us. I saw Ed run down the aisle, dodging between the combatants. His movements were loose and strange, bare skin flecked with blood. He ran to the Super 8 projector, triggered it, and then dragged himself back toward the booth, running with his arms rather than his legs. I saw a flash of white by one of his elbows. Was that bone? I wanted to resist. I wanted to assert myself as the one calm person in a maelstrom of hate and terror, but I knew I wouldn't be able to. It just felt too good to give myself over to the film. My favorite film. I tore my blouse from my chest and approached the screen, arms held wide. I would give myself over to this film. I could have all of me, body and soul as long as I could see the final reel. I suppose you know what they found the following morning. No one in the theater called the police, but it was hardly surprising that someone investigated the noise. It was all over the local papers a day later. Crazed out-of-towners slay locals. Trigger mass hysteria. What was I supposed to say to that? I couldn't say what really happened, and doing so would only implicate myself, either as a crazy woman or as someone who knowingly endangered the entire town. Ed was found dead in the projection booth. His neck had broken, despite that being technically impossible to do in the enclosed space. Of the 400 people packed into that little theater, I imagine little less than 100 survived. I've seen theories flying around about me on the forums. People saying that I'm a witch, or that I am somehow in league with the director of the film's satanic mission. Some even suggested that I was the director of the film, and I had to stop myself from pointing out I hadn't even been born when the film was made. I wisely kept my head down. Maybe I'll do an AMA one of these days if I really get desperate, but for now, anonymity suits me. I'll go down in history as one of the most infamous horror fans on the internet, one way or another. Edith sent me a postcard a few months later. In the chaos, I had completely lost sight of her. She seemed to be thriving, invited me to join her in Hawaii. I've put two and two together by now. She was not as ignorant of the film's history as I had assumed. Whatever her parents did to earn her hatred, I may never know. But it was clear she saw this as a chance to rid herself and the world of them forever. I could still take her up on her offer, I suppose. I haven't decided. The worst part about this whole affair is that part of me is happy about what happened. Not the death or destruction, per se, but that I was finally able to see the film in its entirety. And I suspect, wherever he is, the agent is surprised I survived the night. In a sense, I beat him. No, that's not the worst part. The very worst part is that I want to show the movie again. Not at Lakeshore Cinema, that place is long since boarded up. I've even moved out of my parents' place. I didn't take much with me. Just a suitcase, a backpack, and 12 reels of film. I'm still looking for a new place to show the town that dreams forgot. 
If you know a theater looking to set up a midnight movie showing, give me a call. I promise it will be a memorable night. joining us on our journey down the lost highway. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member. As the darkness fades, it feels like you're going to dream This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media 